Welcome to episode 29 of Miles and Pints, the Travel and Beer Podcast. I'm Jeff Brownson. And I'm Derek Dye. And together we're drinking our way through this amazing world, one pint at a time. Whether you love to travel, you love a cold local beer, or you just can't get enough of either, you're listening to the right podcast. That's what we're here to talk about. Our guest today is Eli Kayer from Urban Farm Fermentary. We had a chance to sit down with Eli on a recent trip to Portland, Maine, and it's amazing how much we learned during this interview. Eli takes his fermentation seriously, producing five different types of beverages in the most natural ways possible. It was so cool to be able to taste so many products and see how he incorporates local natural flavors into everything he makes. Before we get to that interview, though, let's take a minute to thank our regular listeners. Without you, we'd just be talking to ourselves. If you haven't already, click that button to subscribe to the show so you won't miss anything we have coming down the line. We're happy to have Beer by Coleman back as the sponsor of this episode, too, so be sure to check out their site for all of your craft beverage needs. And now, after a quick word from our sponsor, let's get to the good part. Sit back, relax, crack open your favorite brew, and enjoy our chat with Eli. Are you looking into opening a new brewery, distillery, or craft beer bar? Or are you already an owner or operator, and you're looking for help to go from surviving to thriving? Maybe you're simply looking for a finely curated virtual craft beer or beverage tasting experience for your business or organization. Well, look no further. Beer by Coleman can help with all of this and more. They're the solution you're looking for for your craft beer and beverage needs. Find out more at beerbycoleman.com and stay tuned for the launch of their brand new podcast, What Are We Drinking About? with Bougie and the Beerst. Hello, everyone. We are in Portland, Maine still. I have Derek sitting uh, just across the tap room there. How are we doing today, Derek? I woke up alive, which is always a good thing, and I'm in Portland, Maine, so it can't get much better than that, Jeff. It is a a great thing to wake up alive, I think. Yes. (laughs) Better than waking up dead, which I don't even know if you can do that or not. But uh, it's good to wake up in Portland, Maine, regardless. And it's not so bad. We're in a super cool space, a place that I had never been before. And um, we're interviewing Eli Kayer, who is the owner of Urban Farm Fermentary which is a little different than what we normally do because they do all sorts of stuff other than beer as well, and we're going to talk a lot about that. But first off, Eli, welcome to the show. Thanks for sitting down with us. Thanks for, uh, for joining me in my tasting room, guys. Yeah, this is not your typical tasting room. It's not your typical brew pub or whatever you call it, but gosh, what a space and what a, what a concept and an idea, and kudos to you for making it happen. This is a really cool space. Thank you very much. It's been a very interesting um, growth over the last decade plus of trying to explore all of these flavors that we're going to get into um, when we get into it today. And we might as well get right off started with that. And we usually start with what we're drinking. But today you've given us, you have a wide range of products and we have, what is there here? Ten, I think 15 different types of things that yep. we're drinking. So we can't run through them all, but give just kind of a wide overview of what you've brought out for us to try today. Sure. So um, on draft in-house, we generally have about 24 things, and we break that up into five different categories. Uh, we start with our non-alcoholic probiotic, which is June, uh, J-U-N, and it's similar to kombucha except for 
two things. The culture is a little different. It's a little more bacterial than yeasty, and it feeds pretty much exclusively on honey. So okay. um, non-alcoholic probiotic. Moving beyond that, we get into our kombuchas, and kombucha uh, fermented tea, as a lot of people know, uh, it's basically fermented cane sugar and tea, and um, generally comes in at about 1% to 2% alcohol, and so it's our first alcoholic beverage out of the gate. What we do with that is, is generally put a base kombucha with seasonal flavors on top of that. Uh, moving down the line, we move towards ciders, and um, we're making quite a few hard ciders here. It was actually what the company was started with. Um, and, and we're doing a little different in that we don't do anything beyond bring in fresh juice and let it wild ferment until there are no sugars left. And so that's the foundation for all of our ciders. It's called the Super Dry, and I've been doing it that way for a decade. And you just get the different flavors with different apples or different You can get it from different fruits. apples. Uh, there's always a little variability because it's an unknown batch of wild yeast and bacteria that are literally growing on the fruit. Um, so it's always a little different, but the biggest thing that changes is uh, fruit juice, the different apples. And then beyond that, once we've got that base dry, we will then condition it on various other seasonally available flavors here in Maine. Okay, And that's cool. the general rule of thumb here is we create a nice base for the most part of each of these different ferments and then we flavor them based on what's available in our area when they're available. So it changes a lot through the year. Um, we have some baseline things, but most products like the rose petal, anything, will only be around for about a month, you know, maybe three weeks, depending. Because then the rose petals are gone. And yeah, we've used them up and everyone's drank it up. And next year uh, you can see try next again. Year. Exactly. Um, after the cider, we move into, I would say, the meads, um, which are higher alcohol. Um, and so that's a fermented honey, if you're not familiar with mead. Uh, the big difference that we're doing with our meads is that instead of killing the natural yeast and bacteria that are in the honey, um, we're actually allowing that to survive, but inoculating the batch with the dry cider yeast we capture from our cider ferments. Those yeasts tend to be higher uh, tolerant for alcohol um, because they've survived through the entire cider fermentation phase, uh, but they're still relatively uh, intolerant of higher alcohol. So our meads, which should be about 12% alcohol, usually end up at about 9 or 10 because the yeast dies out. So there's going to be a little res residual sweetness there, um, a little bit of funk from the bacteria and yeast that was in the apples or on the honey. And so it's always a little different. But uh, that, again, we have a semi-sweet here, and we build flavors off of that. And then lastly, we opened up a small brewery. It's called Gruet Brewing, and it's essentially the grain fermentation arm of the UFF. Um, the UFF is about fermentation of all things local, and um, to do that, you need to be able to make beers. And so knowing what I was trying to accomplish with the seasonal flavors and looking back historically on how beers were made before they were called beers, they were called Gruets. And Gruets were essentially grain ferments that were flavored and preserved with plants that were growing around the people who were brewing them. Before the Germans d declared that, that it wasn't beer, if it didn't have hops, people were putting things in beers to, to give them a flavor for medicinal reasons, for magical reasons, for whatever reasons they had, but they obviously had to be something that people could gather from around their house. 
So that's where we're at with our beverages. <laughs> um, we, we've got a bunch of different things going on, uh, but the general theme is base ferment, seasonally flavored, short term. And sitting here this morning with you, Eli, seeing about 20 small pours in front of us, I think it goes without saying, but for our listeners so they know, Urban Farm has something for everyone uh, in, in these mix. You have honey-based drinks. You have apple-based drinks. You have non-alcoholic drinks. You have much higher ABV drinks. There's literally something for everyone, so it's really easy to come to Urban Farm on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon, sit outside, and have, have drinks regardless of who comes with you. There's, there's something for all ages. Yep, and, and everything beyond the beer is gluten-free, which is really important for a lot of people these days. Um, and that's not necessarily by design. That's just by the nature of the products that we produce. Um, so, yeah. And it's interesting that it, just as we've been sitting here, it's been, what, five, ten minutes now, and seeing the look on your face as you describe these things and the excitement and the history and where these things come from, that there's a lot of love that goes into this place. Yeah. Um, I am very excited. I actually haven't taken a sip yet because they're so pretty sitting here and we, we're getting all set up. So I'm excited to try some of these and see the directions you're going with it. It's interesting that you started out and eventually found your way to beer, and we found you through looking at breweries. And right. We kind of yeah. went backwards the other way, and then we're like, whoa, they're doing all sorts of cool stuff. Totally. So excited to get into a little bit of that today. I'd like to go back a bit. We, we kind of jumped right into everything that you're doing now, but let's go back to your history so people know where you came from. Sure. Have you, you obviously haven't always been a, a brewer of beer because you've just been doing that for a little while, but if yep. brewing all of these different beverages, is that kind of what you did growing up and what you wanted to do, or did you do something else before that? Where's, take us back to a, a younger you and, yeah. and what you're... What, we, what were you doing? Well, um, so I moved, I'm from Maine. Um, I moved away for college, came back in the early 90s and um, created a messenger company for myself. And uh, so I was the only bike messenger in, in the state for a number of years. And that was my, my thing for like 10 years. That's what I did. And right towards the tail end, I was also a graphic designer. I, I rebranded the company from this little courier dude to the hive I'm not sure where the inspiration came from it but I just got it in my head that I wanted a new look for the company and so the couriers seemed like bees to me and I had a little bike shop and that was the hive it was called the hub at the time and and um, and part of that rebrand was I created new brochures and, and keep in mind I was the only business in town I felt like I had most of the business in Portland but this rebrand, um, I ended up buying honey straws from this old time beekeeper to put on as a marketing thing. And I was getting new business. It was really interesting to me that I was getting business from these, from these brochures, so much so that I actually ran out of honey straws. So I go back to this old timer and I'm like, I need some more straws to um, put on my brochures. And he's like, oh, well, you're going through these pretty quick. Do you ever think about keeping bees? And I said, no. I'd never considered it. Um, and so, long story short, I ended up getting a couple hives with a friend and got like 10 gallons of honey that year. And at this point, I wasn't drinking at all. I just had been biking every day and I just didn't really drink. Um, it was more of a, ch a lifestyle choice. And so, not knowing what to do with all this honey, you can only eat so much of it, you can only give so much of it away, I decided to make mead, which was 
really strange for me because I don't, I didn't drink at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and so I made this mead and it was a hit. It was delicious. I was kind of throwing these art parties at the time. I would bring it to the parties and I just watched these really fun parties turn into something legendary. And I, I felt like it had a lot to do with the mead. And so that was like in 2002. And fast forward the next four years, I'm, I'm becoming more of a mead home brewer and I'm getting excited about it. And, and by 2006, I find out about this international mead content, uh, competition slash conference in Colorado. So I go to this thing because I'm just like jazzed and I'm feeling like the pull to start this new career. I was kind of done being a courier. I'd already done that for like 10 years. I was in my 30s at that point. I was tired of biking every day and I got jazzed. And while I was there, I met this scientist from South Africa who had invented this like incredible 24-hour fermentation system, like mind-blowing. And so I talked to this guy and he inspired me to open up a company. So I came back to Portland and I opened up the first meadery in 2008, right in this building actually. And that was so much fun. I started it up, I started distributing it, I brought some partners in. Um, a couple years later, it turned in a way that it just wasn't gonna work out anymore. So I stopped for a second and thought, what do I really love about what I was doing? Um, do I like producing? Do I like engaging people? Do, what do I love about this? And I liked it all, but I knew that I had to really do it in a way that was gonna be sustainable and work for my lifestyle and hopefully benefit the community. And so I created the Urban Farm Fermentary at that point in 2010 to explore fermentation the way bees explore flowers. So you're out, they're out there and the way bees do it is when any one bee or any group of bees finds a very strong source of nectar, which is their source of honey and their life, um, they communicate that to, to, the, to the hive and whichever group has the strongest interest in a location, they all go get it. And then they all bring it back and then they all share it. And, it, and it's like their whole life is based around this community feeling. And so I wanted that to be a part of what we were doing here, but using fermentation as a way to express those seasonal flavors. You know, strawberry honey is very different than blueberry honey, which is very different than a tree honey or, or anything else, you know? And so, so looking at the landscape of Portland, there were quite a few breweries, not nearly as many as there are now, um, but nobody was making cider. So I figured that was a safe place to start with the Urban Farm Fermentary. Um, did a bunch of trials as I was building this place out and fell in love with wild fermentation at that point. And that kind of began the basis of how I was going to view the rest of all our fermentations, which was as hands-off as possible, clean and simple, and as much as possible leaving it up to nature. And so we got into it, and I started making different ciders, following cider traditions, but also doing this experimental stuff, by seasonally flavoring, um, doing a little bit of meads. Um, kombucha had been on my radar a little bit and I had seen some things happen in the area where kombucha was questionably alcoholic or not. And so in 2011, I applied for a bunch of formulas through the TTB, which is the, uh, the alcohol division of the, of the government. And I got approved as a winery to make kombucha. So we started doing that. I didn't like the sugar aspect of it, but I did like the idea that it was a health beverage that was there to help people out and improve their health. And so it fit in nicely. And we ran that program for a few years, the, the, you know, myself and the staff. And I always knew that we needed to have a grain fermentation arm. 
at some point, and it took a long time until my friend Jason actually moved to town, and he was my head brewer for about five years, and he developed the entire Grew It program um, and, and melded it with everything else we were doing. And, um, and then the tasting rooms opened up the way they did, the neighborhood exploded the way it did, and, and here we are. And before we move on to kind of the evolution of Portland and, and the area around Urban Farm, which is really interesting for all of our listeners to hear, I wanted to first ask you, do you have any formal training uh, of, uh, and, and tell our listeners about that? I mean, you're talking about super scientific stuff, yeah. especially in the metery portion and the, and the fermentary portion. That's, that's complicated Science. Yep, absolutely. Um, I I do have some training. I took Peter Mitchell's science uh, cider class. Uh, Peter Mitchell is a well-known cider maker and teacher from the UK. Uh, He comes to the US um, twice a year, I believe, once on the East Coast and once on the West Coast to teach these classes. You could also go to the UK. So I took his class, and what I learned about his class was that direction was not the direction I was going to be going with my products. I wanted hands-off and wild and to allow things to be what they were obviously you need to know how to keep things clean for that to work properly so it was interesting i would say i'm I'm more of a home brewer uh and when i say brewer i'm more of a home fermenter because i actually don't make the beers here i have hired people to make beers i'm I'm not a brewer i i take fermented i take sugars and ferment them and so the technical side of things i actually rely pretty heavily on other folks uh, I'm more of a visionary dreamer um, who really wants to focus in on making sure that we have interesting products that are seasonally flavored, and, and I lean heavily on, on people who uh, have been trained more properly than myself, to be honest. I want to touch on something that you mentioned there, and it's the letting nature take its way and the cleanliness aspect of it, because it's, I mean, it's very true if you're just letting things happen. If something else got in there, you can get messed up pretty quick. Absolutely. But on the other side of things, no matter how clean that is, you're going to have different uh, bacterias or different a variety of things on the ingredients that you put on. Does that make it uh, tough for you? Or maybe you don't even try to recreate some of these flavors or these drinks? Or do you even have a baseline that you keep doing? Or is it just continually evolving with the ingredients that you have? It's constant evolution. There is a range that you want to keep things in. Um, but in my experience, when you're doing the things that we're doing, it's always a little different. There's just no way around it. The apples are different from year to year. The honey is different from year to year. The only thing that's relatively consistent would be um, the, the, the gruits or the grain ferments, because the grains are generally kind of the same-ish. And, and so all of these things vary quite a bit. Um, but again, there is a range. You know, if something was like too sour, and this is the nice thing about it with cider as an example, a sour cider that's no longer acceptable as a dry cider could easily be turned into a different type of product. Um, one of the things that I learned through this cider program was that there are places in the world, such as like northern Spain, where we've been to, uh, to ferment before. That's how they do it. They basically press this juice. It's all whatever wild apples they have it sits in a tank for x amount of months or what have you they take it out and it just gets progressively more sour until the next season and people are just drinking it every day and every week it's a little more sour you know and that's just what they know to be cider and it's delicious um and so it's a lot of opening up your palate to variability opening up your palate to new flavors um and preparing yourself to get a little wild 
That's really cool. When you talk about the it, over in Spain with it getting more and more sour, it's almost like each year you get a reset and you start over with totally. your cider. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's the same here, actually. The dry cider early season is different than the dry cider late season because we're not adding chemicals to it. We don't pasteurize it. We don't do any of that stuff. We put it in and it continually evolves a little bit. You know, I know most people are like, they want it to stay the same forever. And unless it's intentionally a barrel aged thing that you want to evolve, but our whole game is evolution. And it's, um, it's, it's the competition between all of these microorganisms and the fruit and the environment that it's in that really tells the story in a lot of ways and makes it interesting in my opinion. And without going, I guess, you know, into deep philosophical discussions, but would you say that's probably what separates what you're doing from your average brewery? in that rather than just brewing a recipe, your secret recipe for your IPA or your dry Irish stout or whatever it, yep. whatever it is, you're not following a, a, a recipe or a formula. You're letting nature take course. And like you say, every time you do it, it's gonna be slightly different. You're not, you're not chasing that recipe. No, we're not robots and we're not running after any sort of hype. We are basically just doing very simple things and exploring or experiencing the seasonality of it. It's, it's, it's literally, it's a marker for time and place. The, the, the cider, that, and we just started producing cider in New York. The cider that's produced in Maine, same recipe, which is essentially just fresh pressed apples hanging out in a tank until there's no more sugars, noticeably different. Baseline dry, same product, but different location, different flavor. And it's amazing, you know, we're, we're beer background people and we typically interview um, breweries and yep. it's just so cool to hear how different the mindset is like on a on a baseline fundamental level your mindset is completely different than just we have a really good fill in the blank let's yep. make it every single day you're totally. not doing that nope haven't that's been really cool it's cool it's challenging i'm sure <laughs> <laughs> you know i mean not everybody's into it and some people really want this thing that they tasted last year to taste the same this year and you know again there's a range and and if it's outside the range we don't release it but at the same time when you're coming to this place when you're picking up our products in in the fields like you got to expect a little variability there and i think that probably provides you with i don't I don't know if I would say a different type of customer, but a, a set group of repeat customers that know things are gonna be different and they can go over to whatever, they can go to Allagash and they know they can get an Allagash White and that's gonna be the same wherever you get it anywhere in the country year after year after year and totally. it's delicious. Totally. But if they want a little bit of a surprise for their taste buds or they wanna try something new, they know that they can come here and three months later they can come here and get completely different products and three months later completely different products again yeah. based on whatever you're finding to be able to add in for these flavors. It's a, it's a really cool concept and I just want to point out, I said before that I hadn't tasted anything. I've now gone through five or six of them and there's nothing that I wouldn't drink a full glass of so far. <laughs> so everything I've had is, is, is really good so far. I'm excited to try the rest as we go through here. Yeah, I think you had a couple, or you might have had the biscuit phrase, which was our yogurt soured beer. We got a couple meads there. Um, not sure what everyone's drinking here, but. <laughs> yeah, we, we moved it all around, so yeah. we'll have to get some, some tips as uh, we go through and find out what it was that we liked the best by color and flavor. And exactly. I mean, they were, they're, they're just fantastic so far. And you talked to us a little bit about 
the different types of beverages you made and kind of the evolution of that and how you kept adding, how you added in the cider and then you thought you should have the grain fermentation so you added that in and you had the bees. Like, I want to quickly go back because you originally were doing mead because you had so much honey from the bees. Do you still keep your own bees and use your own honey or have, do you progress to where you have to bring that in from elsewhere? Um, I, it's evolved. I mean, beekeeping is one of those things that... Um, you know, it doesn't require a ton of work, but it does require work when it requires work. And uh, if you don't do the work when you need to, which is essentially rearranging your hive or, or adding space for the bees, they will swarm and fly away. And so the first three years of this company, uh, I was self-distributing. I was on the road all the time. I didn't really have the time to do that. And so um, I stopped keeping bees and have been working with a local uh, apiary, and he gets us all the types of honey that are available in Maine. And that's the nice thing about honey is, depending on when you capture it, you can very distinctly choose different types of, of honey. So, early, you know, wildflowers, honey from everything, it's all the flowers. But if you put a beehive in the middle of a blueberry barren, those bees are gonna recognize that that's the most abundant flavor and they will collect just that nectar. And you can see the difference in color and clearly the difference in flavor when you taste that honey. And that's gonna create a different different thing and so so long story short I don't have the time to but this guy um, you know he he's got apiaries all over the state of Maine and he's bringing that stuff in as we need it and that's what actually led to that question is before you had mentioned that strawberry honey and blueberry honey are different depending on where they're getting the flowers from and I was like wait do you have some gigantic thing somewhere where you yeah. have all these fields and so it, it makes me I, I a little more comfortable to know that you're not also doing that with along with all of this stuff here because well, I didn't know how you had all the hours in the day. I'm not doing uh, the farming aspect. I'm not gathering the honey necessarily. I'm not, you know, growing the strawberries or the blueberries that we purchase. We work with farmers for that because that makes a lot of sense. They are focused on their craft. They're focused on their products. They, they manage that and then we purchase that from them. That's part of that cycle. Here at the UFF, we've got the base grains or the base sugars, which we purchase from other folks. Um, most of the flavors, the small batch flavors, are foraged by myself or my team, you know, my crew. Um, on Mondays, this year being an exception, or last year being an exception, Mondays I would take the whole staff out, and we're actually just about to go on the first forage of the season. Um, and I think that's next week we're going to be picking dandelion flowers, just the petals. And we put those into a beer, we put those into a kombucha, and it changes the color, it changes the flavor. Moving forward, we just, every, every time something else pops up, I try and get the team together when we're having a little bit of downtime, because it's really nice to go out to the country and sit in a field and pick flowers and like chat with your, your, your staff and like your friends and that sort of thing. And then bring it back and make it into these incredible products that we then share with the community you know and visitors and that sort of thing so that's again going back to that beekeeping thing it's like we're a community of people we're working together we're living together we're trying to have our best lives together and and for me these beverages are, are a way to help get there so um, so yeah it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting process and you're talking about this foraging concept how often do you go on one of these expeditions um, in the summer, it is nonstop. Basically, that, that really became my job last year. I 
was I, you know, I basically just jump in my car, I drive 10, 15 minutes outside of town into the country because that's where the country is, and uh, gather whatever's fresh, you know, um, whether it's sweet fern, which is this plant that grows everywhere that's super aromatic, um, berries, um, uh, mostly, mostly flowers and plants just because nobody's really growing a lot of these things in a way. I mean, the berries and the fruit, somebody else is taking care of it for the most part, but it's you know, it's kind of my heaven in a lot of ways because I get to go out there for like three or four hours, pick a bunch of plants, come and know that they're going to be going into something delicious. Stop at a river, go for a swim, clean up, come back into town, work with the staff to like turn these into something amazing. And so I did a lot of that myself. Um, it was a bit of a therapy last year when everyone was so contained. I was in the country most yeah, of the time. Yeah, to be able to get out there and uh, like find something cool and bring it back and like let's make something delicious out of this. That totally. sounds... Especially, you had me at the hop in a river and go for a swim. I was like, oh, that sounds yeah. like a good day, right? If there. you guys were here in July, we would be doing that right after this. You know, like <laughs> drive out to a little river spot, like super cool, clean water, beautiful, you know, and just go for a little dip and rinse the day off and then get back in the car and head back to work, you know? Probably not going to do that this week, though. Still not a little bit cold no. that water. <laughs> it's, a little, it's a little chilly, but we're getting there. It's right around the corner. And it sounded like you answered my question, but I'm going to ask it. Do you typically do this foraging on your own? Do you, uh, do you usually have employees with you? Is it open to customers or friends? Yep. For a long time, we would host uh, crop mobs. This is something that I learned about when I was visiting some friends in Asheville, like probably 10 years ago or something and I was hanging out with some people and one of them was a farmer and I was there with my girlfriend and she ran off with with her friend who was the this guy's girlfriend and he was sitting around he's like well listen I gotta do this crop mob thing if you want to hang out at the house it's fine uh, but I gotta do this thing and I was like well, crop mob that sounds interesting what's that all about and he's like well it's just this group of farmers and 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 basically every month we identify a farm that needs some help and we go there and we all just pitch in it's like a barn raising or whatever. And, and so, you know, 20 or 30 farmers will show up and, and instead of this job that takes a farmer a month, it gets crushed It just gets day. done. It just gets done. It's awesome. That's so cool. It's super cool. And then the farmer basically makes a, a meal for everyone and then they decide after the meal what the next farm is going to be that they're going to work on and then they just kind of do it. So I went and I helped this dude, like, I built rabbit cages for a day. You know what I mean? Like, it was it was fun and I had a really delicious rabbit stew after and some raspberry pie from the raspberries on their property or whatever and it was just it blew my mind again it tied back into that community sense of beekeeping and the hive and community and those sorts of things and so I was like I want to do this with my company up north let's start creating crop mobs and so we, we would offer those um, to varying levels of su success because you know everyone's got lives and they're busy and what have you. And, and sometimes when there's a plant available, you kind of got to get it, you know, like some, some plants you got a week and when they're gone, they're gone, you know, they, they've come and gone. And so if you don't get them and dry them and store them, they're, you're not going to have it. So I would think that also you probably, when you're just opening it up to people, people read it on the website and they're like, oh yeah, this is really cool. I'm going to do that. And then they come out in I don't know, heels or like yeah, 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 yeah. to climb through a a muddy field and they're like oh wait there's bugs i don't yeah. want to do that i mean so. it's work <laughs> you know, i mean you work. know what you're getting into totally. but yeah, customers may not well sometimes. you know the other thing is too there's there's risks out there i mean there's ticks out there i got lyme disease like four years ago which was not a fun experience you know and so there's there's definitely it's risky you know and so um 
So anyway, uh, we do, we have opened it up to the public in the past. We've taught classes and workshops. That's one, one of the big things that we do here or have done in the past was teach people about all these processes, try and find people who know more about these plants and see if they'll teach other folks about it. Um, and so, so yeah, but most of the time it's me. I just go by myself a lot because I'm not doing the pr production work. I'm not really doing the sales as much anymore. You know, I'm mostly just trying to make sure that we gather these plants and bring them in and turn them into products. Um, yeah. And are you mostly at this point, I mean, it sounds like you have quite a bit of knowledge about what grows and when it grows and what yep. you're looking for. Do you mostly go out with the intention of, like you said, you're going out with the crew to get dandelions because yeah. you know that's going to be there and you know that's when you can get it. Are you mostly doing that with a specific product in mind or are you sometimes just going out and seeing what you can find and who knows how it's going to go? At this point, uh, you know, 10 years in and, and I got to be honest, I mean, most of this stuff, I learned most of the ingredients we have. I learned from other people showing up and being excited about something they knew, maybe because it's something they saw at my shop. But, you know, I've learned 90 percent of what I know from other folks. And so and then the experience of knowing that it comes back every year. Right. And so I've got a foraging calendar, which every year when we start picking anything, I put it down in there and it changes from year to year, depending yeah. on, on the weather. Um, and so I'm usually picking things, knowing that I'm going to try and put them in as many products as possible. But sometimes there's certain things that really stand out in a product. Kombucha is uh, the best example, I think, because it does take on flavors real easily and it holds them true to form in ways that things like cider or mead require more of uh, to really get the expression of it. So kombucha is kind of my go-to for the additional flavors. Uh, it also doesn't have sort of a history the way cider and mead and beer does. Um, so you can kind of, it's kind of like Wild West in some ways. Yeah, people don't know what they, they don't expect know. it to taste like. Exactly, you know, Fair. and so. I mean, honestly, I don't know that I've ever had a kombucha. Okay. My, my wife was like, I don't like them. I was like, well, you don't like beer either, so right, I'll right, try right, right. it. <laughs> but so it's, I think there's much less of that beer drinkers want beer to taste like beer. Cider drinkers want cider to taste like cider. So right. it's cool that you can put those flavors in. Yeah. When you're going out foraging, are you typically going to lands that are your own or people you know? Or are you just seeing something on the side of the road and going and knocking on a door and saying, hey, can I pick this stuff out of your yard? Yep. Well, I don't have lands, so it would, it would not be mine. It's primarily wild. Um, if it's on somebody's property, and I know it's on somebody's property, I will go up to their house and, and knock on the door. I've done that a lot with apples, crab apples, things like that. Now, 90% of the time you knock on somebody's door, the fruit is littering their lawn anyway. They want it cleaned up. It's yeah, saving it away. them time, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, and, and, you know, I've gotten some really cool recipes from people who are just stoked that I'm in there trying to pick up their plants, you know, and are their, 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 like, wasted fruit. But most of it's, like, you know, just going to places that are out in the middle of nowhere, you know, like, and just walking around um, in fields on the edge of things. And if I see something, like elderberries, as an example, that's just a wild plant. It grows all over the place. If I see some and it's just, you know, a couple hundred yards off the road or whatever, I'm going to go out and get them, you know, like, obviously I'm not trying to trespass. I, you know, you want to be respectful of people's places, but there's a lot of stuff out there that's just wild and, and like nobody really cares about. And so, um, it reminds I, me back when I was little, we had, uh, I grew up in upstate New York and we had, um, 
a fairly big yard, but off in the one side of the yard, it would get some additional moisture. There was a kind of a little canal next to it that would overflow sometimes. And the a guy stopped one time and he knocked on the door. He's like, hey, can I pick these mushrooms? And we were like, what mushrooms? What are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, exactly. Because they're like, we go out to the driveway here. They're over there. We don't even see it. And he's like, I was driving by and I saw that you have some morel mushrooms growing in your yard. And yeah. we were like, wait, we do? What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we let him pick all he wanted. We had some. We, we were like, great. <laughs> and now you know about them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which is really yeah. cool. So that's a, that's a great example of uh, one of the products we make here. It's called chaga. And I didn't know what chaga was. And chaga is a very medicinal mushroom. Grows on birch trees. It's very woody. Um, real hard to see most of the year. But in the winter, you can see it. So every time I was doing these sales runs around the state of Maine, because I would literally loop most of the state, in the winter, I'm like looking off in the woods. And if I see a decent sized piece of chaga that's within reach, because usually it's like 30, 40 feet up in a tree and I'm, you're just not getting it. But if it's like anywhere that I can get it and it's like mature, that's how I got it. You know, now we have foragers who actually gather that because, you know, um, it's one of those ingredients that doesn't really leave Maine, but it's, um, but we do produce enough of this chaga chai kombucha that it um, requires more than my ability to get it. And while talking about foraging, it has obviously a direct relationship with what you produce here at Urban Farm. Tell, tell our listeners a little bit about, does the foraging calendar you've mentioned, does that dictate your, your uh, production schedule here at Urban Farm? Uh, what's the interplay there? It dictates the flavor schedule. We're always producing dry cider and always flavoring it with things or keeping it base. Um, we're generally always producing mead, although it becomes tough once we stop pr producing cider. Because cider fresh pressed, you can only really get it from the fall until maybe the next month, and then it's they're out, right? Um, <clears throat> so the, it, the flavors depend on the foraging, but the base does not. And then the base, uh, as you're talking about the meads versus the ciders, those are on a, a, their own calendar? They are, yeah, seasonal. Uh, honey's storable, so you can get it any time. The challenge I have is getting the yeast from the apples to make the meat. So just so I'm clear, uh, it sounds like you have basically two calendars going at all time. First, the base things you're producing, yep. and then the adding the foraging flavors to those bases. Exactly. Is that right? Yep, that's exactly that's it. That's really, really cool, and it, it, it really goes to show for our listeners how different it can be week to week here when you're trying to come drink something the base could have changed yep. but definitely the flavor has changed definitely and that starts now i mean like literally next week we're going out to pick our first forage and so this is it and and in like by july it's it's almost like there's too many flavors you know because everything's coming on how do you pick which one well you pick it all and you try and and, and put it out there as, as best you can and you store as much as you can so we you know we store a lot of strawberries and a lot of rose petals and those sorts of things because it's really nice in february to like have a little taste of summer so we do some of that too you know like around valentine's day we do a lot of reddish drinks and that's usually summer flavors berries and things um so there is a little bit of like um you know, we're releasing things as they're available. We're also holding on to some things for special events and special reasons. Um, very limited usually, but, and, and then when it's done, it's done. See you next year. 
That's that, so cool. And that's just flavor wise. I, 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 I just keep thinking, I'm like dumbfounded here. I'm like, I, I need to come here every couple of weeks and right. try what you're making. Yeah. And yeah. I can't do that because I live very far away. <laughs> and again, not to belabor the point, but it goes back to the whole fact of how different the fundamental baseline thinking is day to day, week to week. Everything you're doing could be different yeah. than last week. And that's just so different from what is normal at a brewery. It's very crazy in a lot of ways because not only does that change all the time, but we've got five different product lines, you know, so there are, and they all require different sorts of attention, you know, and so it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. It's not a, it's not a simple operation, um, but it's interesting and I think it's worthy and worthwhile and I think it's beneficial in a lot of ways, in ways that sort of your, um, I don't want to say generic, but your, your general way of like, you know, somebody's going to come in and they're going to start a cidery, they're going to start a meter, they're going to start a brewery, and they're going to focus on those things. And there's a lot of credit in, in, in doing that. It makes a lot of sense. This is a little insane, I think, in some ways, and it's based on my brain um, wanting to express all these things. Um, but, it, but it's tasty, and it's, and it's certainly pretty fun, and it's nice to be able to, to be in nature regularly to, to try and realize this sort of thing. And you can see how that expanded with you. With you said it's your brain and how your brain works. That you were like, oh, this looks cool. We should do that. Well, that's kind of related to this. We should do that too. Sure. And we should do this, and we should do that. It's. I mean, I knew I always wanted to do ferment fermentation of all of the things that were available, um, but it wasn't until we really got into it that I was understanding how many flavors there were out in the world that could be added to these bases. And not only that, you know, this is a very hand to mouth operation. Didn't, you know, it's not like I have money or, or we didn't really start, I didn't start the company with a bunch of money. And so it was very much um, make a product, sell a product, reinvest, and just keep it growing like that. So it's very organic. I mean, I know we took a little walk through the space and it's not your normal uh, production facility. It's very maze-like because we grew into this 10,000 square foot facility over the course of like, you know, almost a decade. Um, and it's, um, you know, it's very organic <laughs> in that way. That was such an exciting interview with Eli, and be sure you come back next week to hear the second part of that interview. He just has so much energy and so much passion for what he's doing, and it's so different than so much of the beer and breweries that we see up in the Portland area. Definitely an excellent guy to talk to and a really cool place to visit. But for now, we're going to get into our Miles and Points with Pints segment, where we give you all of the updates when what's happening in the credit cards, hotel, airline, and travel worlds. Are we ready to go with that, Derek? I am. And first, I have to say, in our three-ish weeks since we've been back from talking with Eli at Urban Farm, I've been really thinking about starting an apiary. It's probably a terrible idea, but I really want honey. So I mean, you know, you're going to have a lot of space at that new place. I, you know, I don't see uh, why you wouldn't do that. And I have plenty of time for extra hobbies. So why not become a beekeeper, right? You can come yeah, over. We can make some time. mead. Yeah, spare time. I got plenty of time for some beekeeping. Sounds awesome. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> but before we get into these uh, updates, on a serious note, there's been a lot of things this week. If you follow anyone really in social media, any breweries, you've seen there has been a huge influx of posts 
addressing sexism and harassment and assault of women in the beer and brewing and craft beverage industry. And it, we wanted to take just a minute or two to talk about this. It, the stories were compiled by Instagram user at Rat Magnet, which we will link to. I believe uh, Brienne is how you say her name, hopefully. But she, she started out just asking a simple question because she had experienced some harassment. And the answers that she got were just everything ranging from kind of bad to absolutely horrible things that had happened to women in the craft beverage industry and breweries in specifics. So uh, we just wanted to say that here at Miles and Pints, we absolutely stand behind these women. We think that this is awful what is happening. And I, I think that the first step is to believe everyone who is coming forward with these things and support the women any way you can. And if you are at a brewery or you work at a brewery and you see this type of thing happening, please say something. Stop it. Don't let it keep occurring. And that's the only way that things are going to get better here in the craft brewing industry. Yeah, and Jeff, obviously beer is for everyone, uh, both to drink it, we believe, and also uh, the management side, the brewing side, the, the employment side. Uh, beer is for everyone. We need to call this stuff out when it happens. Uh, we need. Uh, we hope that people can be brave enough to call it out when it happens, and it needs to be nipped in the bud and, and never happen again. So uh, our thoughts are with uh, the victims out there, and we hope that um, this is a non-issue in the future. And if you haven't seen any information on this, do go check that out on Instagram. She has some links and some saved stories. There have been, at this point, over 100 brewery locations who have had complaints and allegations against them. Uh, It's gone as far as the founder of Tired Hands Brewing has stepped down because there were multiple um, reports of bad behavior at their brewery. So it's it's a serious problem. We say over 100 breweries at this point, but that's obviously just the tip of the iceberg. Not everyone is going to report these problems. So it's a huge, huge problem in the industry. So, I mean, do your best when you're out there. If you see something, say something. Let's let's try and make the beer industry a more inclusive place for everyone, whether it be men, women, any race. Anyone who wants to come drink beer should be welcome to drink beer in a comforting and happy environment. So... Now that we've done a little bit of that, let's get into our updates. And as always with credit cards, where are we going to start? With Chase. And they have some good offers right now, right? It seems like we talk about these every week. Yeah, we do. We do. And that's because they're all-time high offers, Jeff, at least on one of the cards. Uh, We reported, I believe, the last two weeks, Doctor of Credit. A notable blog uh, with a lot of articles every single day, a lot of data points if you don't follow Dr. Credit. It's a good way to get typically reliable information, quick hitting information. A lot of times they break the news. They started reporting around May 7th that the Chase Sapphire preferred offer, 80,000 ultimate rewards and $50 grocery credit, and the 60,000 point ultimate rewards sign up on the CSR. Um, the CSP, the CSR offers were going away on May 22nd. Doctor of Credit is extremely reliable on these things until they're not, Jeff. 
Uh, everyone and their mom was reporting it as going away on the 22nd. People were scrambling. Uh, if you were at that four-year mark trying to downgrade a CSP or a CSR and wait a few days and apply again, um, just bad information. Uh, they they retracted their um, initial statement this week. Uh, I think it was on the 19th of May they retracted it. It's not ending on the 22nd. We currently have no information from Chase when it is ending, but there are now targeted mailers out there that show end dates in June. Um, I think these targeted mailers are just trying to entice people to sign up. So at this point, it's anyone's guess when it ends. If you are eligible, you should sign up the moment you hear this. Uh, this especially the 80000 CSP offer with the $50 grocery credit is an absolute no-brainer. Uh, but uh, in any event, if you're not wanting to um, hear this and go apply immediately, don't take more than a few days or a week or two to sign up. Uh, it's an absolute no-brainer for anyone that's eligible, and go get it before it ends. Before we move on there, I, I want to just take an opposite point on that, and that is, I although I think it's a fantastic offer, I want it to go higher. So with it not ending on the 22nd, I'm actually holding off a few days to see if maybe more targeted mailers come out in the next week or two, and maybe they even raise that offer up. So I'm a bit of a gambler. I would not necessarily recommend what I'm doing, but if you want to be like me and hope for, I like to believe there's going to be a 100,000 point offer out there. I don't, I mean, there has been no rumor of that whatsoever. I just am seeing what Amex is doing and seeing... Um, some of these monster offers and I, I don't want to apply today and find out something better comes out the beginning of June. So that's my take on it. Probably not the best take, probably not the advice I should be giving out on the podcast, but <laughs> just so people know the silly things that I do and go on in my head. Hey people, at least he's honest, right? He, t he tells you what he's thinking. He's like, it's probably not the smartest idea. You probably don't want to be like Jeff, but FYI, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing? Maybe it'll pay off. We'll see. Hey, you own it. You own it. And Jeff, there was some good news on the credit card front this week. Capital One giving us some some great things to talk about. Yes, and they just, it's been week after week here these last few weeks that they just keep coming up and improving their program and making it easier to earn more points and transfer to more airlines. So this week they announced that the Saver and Saver 1 cards, the earning on those is going to be changing a little bit. And it's not the enhancement we typically get with programs, but it's actually getting better. And the Saver is going to 4% on streaming. Um, a few streaming companies that they mentioned, Netflix and Hulu and I think Disney, maybe a couple others. But the big one on that is it goes to 3% on grocery and that's a, a $95 annual fee card. But if you have that saver and you can do a lot of spend at grocery on groceries or other products that you might find at the grocery store, hint, hint, we do a lot of that on this podcast, then you can pair that with a, a venture card and you can transfer to airlines and you're earning pretty much uncapped 3% at grocery store spend. It's huge. But perhaps the better option is the Saver 1 card, which has no annual fee and is giving 3% on dining, grocery, entertainment, and streaming. So it's not quite as high. It doesn't have that 4% category, 
but it still has 3% on dining and grocery. And that one's for no annual fee. So Capital One just saying, here, bring your spending over to us. Bring as much of your spending as you can over to us. We'll give you a ton of points, and then you can go fly around the world. That's the way I see it. Yeah, it's, it's really amazing, Jeff. And I, I mentioned in Travel on Points yesterday or the day before, sometime this week, whenever it was, um, when this news broke, you know, there's really, for most of us, there's no difference between the saver and the saver one. I'm not paying $95 uh, annual fee versus $0 annual fee to get an extra 1% or 1x miles on streaming. The restaurant benefits we're all going to, most of us are going to use um, a CSR, a, press, a City Prestige, or a MX Gold. So the 4% doesn't really, uh, for restaurants, doesn't really do it for me. As you mentioned, though, the beauty of this is the Saver 1 is no annual fee and uncapped 3% or 3x miles that you can transfer over to a venture card, even the $95 venture card, and then send those at one-to-one to to say Life Miles or Cathay Asia Miles uh, or uh, two-to-one-and-a-half at Turkish, uh, which my math is bad. Three would be 2.25, I think. So you're earning 2.25 miles uh, Turkish miles per dollar at grocery stores for one ninety-five dollar annual fee. All of a sudden, Jeff. I mean, we talk about these card combos. You know, uh, double cash with Premier, uh, Blue Business Plus with a Gold. Uh, all of a sudden, one of the best ninety-five dollar combos you can have out there is going to be the Saver One plus Adventure. I mean, that's just a incredible combo. Yeah, and I think people should be scrambling to get those cards if they can. Again, Capital One, not the easiest to get approved for, but if you're sitting there with not that many applications in the past year or two because you haven't really been doing much or earning many points because you haven't been traveling, then this may be a direction you want to head in. Some big things coming out from Capital One, they're clearly making a play to get people spend who want to travel and use their points for airlines. And you do have to give them a little credit, Jeff. I mean, you know... Unfortunately, uh, on a lot of levels, Capital One gets a bad rap in the points and miles community. Number one, they're—I guess—they're ingenious marketing that brings in so many people to earn, you know, unlimited two uh, X with no blackout dates on the, you know, what's in your wallet card. But people really, really hate Capital One because it's so difficult to get approved for their cards. But to their credit, and I think it's worth uh, t- tipping our hat to Capital One, they have seen the spending trends after quarantine in 2020 and they see what consumers are spending their money on and they are changing their card model to mimic that spend and reward spend in those categories. We have not seen Chase do that. Uh, And Chase is, at least in the points and miles world, is a much bigger player than Capital One. But Capital One clearly is working to uh, gain our swipes and Chase is not. And for that, I think we have to commend Capital One for at least reading the tea leaves and and trying to capture more of those swipes. Absolutely agree with you on that. And another smaller player in as far as the points world is concerned is Discover and their Discover It, Discover It Miles cards. Um, Saw a report over on Miles to Memories this past week that Discover is actually offering retention bonuses for these cards, for the Discover It Miles card, 
what is crazy about this is this is a no annual fee card. So they basically are just saying, we need your transactions. We want the money from your transactions. They're not even getting an annual fee. And they were offering, I think it was uh, 3x miles on the first $3,000 in spend if you keep the card open. Um, definitely worth checking out if you have a Discover card because a, a retention bonus bonus on a no annual fee card is almost unheard of. And I mean, I'll take it. Absolutely. Yeah, and I remember hearing the some data points maybe late in 2020, Jeff, of Amex offering similar retention offers on the no annual fee Blue Business Plus. And any of us award travelers that have a Blue Business Plus with no annual fee earning 2x up to 50k a year, there ain't no way in heck we're getting rid of that card anytime soon. And then you throw out a retention offer on top of no annual fee. Gosh, you gotta, you gotta, what a time to be alive, right? I mean, you gotta love this because getting a retention offer on a no annual fee card is just absolutely bonkers. Fantastic. And then we have another newer entry into the credit card world. They've been around a couple of years. Um, we haven't heard much of them in the miles and points space, but it's a, a bank or a credit card company called Cardless. And they made some waves these past couple of weeks with uh, some sports-related credit cards, but they have a pretty good value, and they were offering a 100,000-point bonus on both the Manchester United card and a Cleveland Cavaliers card. The Manchester United offer is now expired. We're not sure how long the Cleveland Cavaliers one will be around, but their points are worth a half cent each if when you redeem them. So that 100,000-point bonus is $500. That's a straight $500 bonus for you. Maybe easier to get approved for these cardless cards. They don't have any uh, these crazy rules like Chase or Bank of America or limits on cards because they haven't been around long, long enough that people have a whole bunch of their cards. So something to keep an eye out, take a look at if you're looking for a card with a quick bonus to put some cash in your pocket. Uh, cardless Cleveland Cavaliers card may be the thing for you. And I saw a quick report on Frequent Miler. Uh, this week and it was talking about these cards and trying to basically explain what they are and why you, you know whether you should get them or not and uh frequent model i'm not sure if it was greg or nick but um whoever wrote the article said I i'm digging around on the website and i'm not sure if this is a physical card or just an e-card but with a with a brand name like cardless i think it's not a physical card i don't know if you have any insight or not, Jeff, but, um, I mean, they make a good point. With a name like Cardless, you would expect it is not a physical credit card. Yeah, but they do have, I mean, if you look at the pictures on the application, they show physical credit cards, so I don't know. We'll, we'll have to wait and see till some people get those with these offers and, and start posting about it. Perfect. Last news in the credit card front, our favorite shopping portal, Jeff. That'd be the AA shopping portal, right? Absolutely not. Not. Rakuten. Everyone loves the shopping portal that no one can pronounce. Rakuten, either cashback or earning uh, American Express membership rewards if you link a Amex MR earning card to your account and elect to earn in membership rewards, all, uh, almost always a better return than the straight cash back offers. This week, Jeff, they had the highest ever offers, $40 or 
uh, 4,000 membership rewards points for signing up for new accounts. The referrer got those uh, that $40, 4,000 points, as did the referee. So uh, it's a good time to uh, wink, wink, uh, come up with some um, maybe new email addresses for yourself and uh, go refer yourself and uh, sign up for a new account. Sign up uh, your friends, family. Uh, any pets that have email addresses, anyone you can. I was joking about the pets. Don't do that. Uh, we learned that mistake from American Airlines in 2020. Uh, but anyone you can think of that needs to uh, open a new Rakuten account, there was a $40 offer, uh, 4,000 points. Those are now expired, unfortunately. They were only around for a few days. But uh, the $40 offer on the heels of a $30 referral offer that was around for about a month, be on the lookout for those. I think the referrals are going to continue to be elevated, and uh, we now know there's a high of $40, so hopefully that comes back soon. Yes, and if you do have anyone or know anyone who doesn't have one of these accounts, uh, talk to them now, get ready for the next time they bring those higher offers out and, and get them signed up when they do. That's it for credit cards this week. Uh, a couple of quick points in hotels. Hilton first uh, put out some information actually today, the day that we're recording this, a couple days ago once this gets live. But for starting in July and going through the end of the summer in the United States, this is U.S. properties only, there will be no breakfast for elites. Instead, they will be doing a dining credit, and they say that will vary by hotel. So, I don't know. It's kind of news that you aren't sure what to think about it because during COVID, a lot of the hotels weren't doing breakfast anyway, and they were just doing some quick little credit, some of them. Some of them were completely ignoring the benefits, and now they're going to do a credit. So, at least you'll get something as an elite, but it's I can't imagine that they'll be doing credits for the amounts that the breakfasts were worth if you were a Hilton Diamond and staying at a nicer hotel. So... I don't know. I'm, I'm not thrilled about it. I don't have a bunch of Hilton stays coming up this summer, so I don't think it'll affect me that much. But again, U.S. only, no breakfast for elites for Hilton hotels. Probably a push if you're a solo traveler and you're staying at a low-end hotel. Uh, but as you mentioned, Jeff, if you're at those high-end hotels that typically offer, you know, say the buffet breakfast, uh, or you're traveling with a, with a player two or uh, your entire family, Depending on how much money they're giving it, it's a, there's reports of maybe $15, maybe not. Who knows at this point? Hopefully by the time this goes live on Friday, we know more. But uh, depending on how many are in your party and what type of property you're staying at, this could be a big loss. So um, I've had breakfast buffets at Hilton that were, you know, priced $30, $40, $50 each. Uh, and you could have uh, two plus two, I think, in a room at least two, so, you know, maybe a hundred bucks. I doubt they're going to give you a hundred dollar credit. So, um, interesting. Uh, can't wait to find out more, but this probably goes along the lines of a quote unquote enhancement, which will be a devaluation. Yep. And I would guess we'll see some of those. We've had so many great things coming out. We'll see some more devaluations coming out too. It's inevitable. IHG went the other way and did something nice for its members. They have extended free night certificates until the end of 2021. We say this was something they did that was nice. Pretty much every program has done this, and they all did it before IHG. So it's not like they're going out of the box here. They're just playing catch-up. 
And also, they've only extended till the end of 2021. With a lot of places that we still can't travel, that's a very limited time for people to use certificates. Even um, Marriott has gone and extended to 2022 for a lot of their certificates. So, I mean, it's a little bit, it's a little late, but it is nice for people who had those certificates that were going to expire. But definitely don't push those IHG certificates till November when you start thinking about them, you know. Burn them now because they've already, uh, IHG has already done one uh, no-notice devaluation and then kind of walked it back. Uh, So, you know, a hotel you might be able to use it for now may not be in play in December. Pure speculation, but you never know. Uh, It's true with all certs. If you have a use for it that's a decent value, use it now. Uh, It's going to be worth less in the future. That's just inevitable. And as we head over from hotels to airlines, there's some very exciting news this week, especially for those people on the East Coast and those people that are big fans of JetBlue, because they announced a while back that they would start flying to London, but it got put off a little bit with coronavirus, and it's we've just been waiting and waiting, but they not only announced the start dates, but it is now bookable JFK to London Heathrow. Starting on August 11th, JFK to London Gatwick on September 29th. And people in Boston are sad because they said the Boston to London routes aren't going to start until 2022. Those are not bookable yet. But very exciting news, people. I saw a lot of people in the community going nuts and trying to get on those inaugural flights um, into London Heathrow on the 11th. So... Super exciting for those people with JetBlue points, uh, especially if they want to fly Mint across the ocean. A uh, nice little business class flight on what's kind of a short flight for here from the East Coast. Yeah, and the main thing I took away from this, Jeff, is uh, I'm still wanting to try Mint. Everyone that flies it absolutely loves it, especially on these routes, Jeff, with the newer planes and the and the true Mint hard product uh, with these kind of sweet like pods uh, it's a i think they call it the studio yeah yeah uh makes it sound really fancy doesn't it uh it it's a great yeah it's a great way to go to london especially on a non-stop probably one of the best ways now from the east coast but my main concern when they announced it and it was bookable this week it's ridiculously expensive i saw some dates where the cheapest one was like seven hundred thousand points uh, and those points can be transferred from uh, Chase. Uh, I mean, it doesn't matter where they can be transferred for 700,000 points. Nobody's yeah. doing it. Right. You you ever go to spend 700,000 Chase URs to go to London? No. And I actually had a similar reaction when I saw even the economy fairs. People who know me know that I don't believe in business class to Europe unless it's some sort of weird special occasion or something because it's just not that far from the East Coast. I can survive it. Maybe 10 years I won't be able to. I don't know. Now I can still survive it. So I was looking at the economy flights and their their introductory prices were uh, as low as 600 round trip. And I thought, you know, I don't like to pay that much to go to Europe in economy. So I don't think I'm going to be hopping on JetBlue anytime soon. Maybe those prices will come down, but certainly doesn't look, look like it's going to be a game changer in bringing fares down when you can regularly get on TAP Air Portugal for 300 and change round trip to, or 400 and change round trip to Europe. 
Agreed. And, 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 you know, Jeff, we're, we're probably too early in the whatever we are in now, the COVID recovery phase, hoping to travel. But pre-COVID, I mean, it felt like 350 bucks round trip to Europe was expensive, right? I mean, every other week you saw a, a fair sell to Madrid or Barcelona or uh, Lisbon or, you know, uh, Dublin, somewhere, Paris on the, on the west coast of Europe, uh, you know, those six and seven hour flights, like you mentioned, that'd be like $185 round trip. And I'm thinking, uh, you know, those are nonstop flights too from a lot of places. I'm not going to pay 600 bucks to position to New York to fly JetBlue economy. It's just not going to happen. And I don't think most people are going to do it. Yeah, and it may be there may be people in New York who want to do it, people who love JetBlue. I know my mother for a long time anywhere she could possibly fly JetBlue, that's the airline she got on cuz she just thought their seats were more comfortable. So, I don't know. People tend to love that airline. I don't know that I've ever flown with them maybe once. I do have some JetBlue miles that I transferred over from some sort of expiring credit card that I was going to cancel. And I, I'm still looking for the opportunity to use them. So people who fly them love them. I'm not one of those people yet, but I would like to be. I flew them one time, 17 minutes, Jeff. 17 minutes. San Juan to St. Thomas. So you really had time to, to take stock of where you were and what you were and enjoy the experience then? I mean, the sit- seat was super comfortable. My lower half didn't even go numb. Maybe it was because it was only a 17-minute flight, you know, but... Um, yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> we have other news in the world of airlines. Jeff, Delta announced in, I guess, what was a controversial decision, but eh, whatever. Delta has announced that they are going to require vaccines for all new hires. So if you're looking to accept a job with Delta, you will be required to have the vaccine for COVID and be fully vaccinated before beginning your job. And honestly, I can't imagine why anyone would want to be a gate agent or on an airplane and not be fully vaccinated. So I don't think that's going to be a huge number of people that that rules out who were hoping to get a job. There may be some people who are not eligible for the vaccine due to various issues, and I'm sure they'll have exceptions for that. But uh a move by Delta saying we want our planes to be the safest, which we've seen a lot from Delta during these times about them with the middle seats. And now they want everyone who works for them to be vaccinated. So good things coming out from Delta trying to keep their passengers safe. United also in the uh, pandemic news has announced that they've partnered with Abbott for their Binax Now home test, which has been approved by the CDC for your test for coming back to the U.S. And this is only a $25 test. You can buy them through United, I believe, and take them with you on your trip. When it's time to come back, you go online. I assume you need to make some sort of appointment, but someone will, via video, watch you do the test to confirm that you're doing the test, watch you get the results, and then you can come home, assuming that you test negative for coronavirus. So, $25. They are recommending that you travel with more than one of these in case the results come back inconclusive, that you're not scrambling. So maybe it's going to be $50. Take a couple of them with you when you travel for each person. But uh, a pretty inexpensive way, certainly cheaper than the $120 
for each test that I paid when I was in uh, Mexico. So 25, not looking too bad to me. Yeah. At this point, Jeff, I think anything that makes international travel easier for vaccinated Americans is only going to help open up travel, which means American dollars will flow to tourist countries that need those dollars desperately. So a good move all around. Travelers returning home can get a test more easily, uh, and it will make therefore make travel to countries that need our tourism dollars uh, easier and more affordable. So that's uh, great news all around. Speaking of travel, Jeff, to countries that need our dollars, the European ambassadors have agreed to plans to open countries in the EU to vaccinated travelers, specifically vaccinated Americans. So we don't have dates as of yet, uh, but it could begin as early as next week, the last week of May. This is, uh, I would say, massive news, Jeff. I mean, I've, I've been a skeptic. Uh, I, I'm still not believing it's going to happen, but uh, it sounds like we're really close to it happening, although I'm still not believing it. We're, I mean, we're a step closer. They had the announcement that they were going to recommend it. Now we have the announcement that all of the ambassadors from the member countries have agreed to it. Next week, we get the formal vote and we'll see how they're going to implement it. So hopefully it will be soon. Again, if you're looking at traveling to Europe this summer, definitely do some research. Maybe try and connect with some locals. Find out what is open in different places because as these countries open up, not everything is going to be running. A lot of businesses, a lot of tourism businesses may have uh, ended up having to close due to the pandemic. So you may not have the experience that you're hoping for. The cities may not have the same vibe. There won't be the same number of people in them. But if you like traveling when there aren't too many people around, it might be a time to go and sneak in a trip to some of these more popular destinations in Europe. All great advice, Jeff. And speaking of research before going, I'm sure most of our listeners, if not all, have seen in the last week or so, some massive changes happening in their own communities. The CDC has outlined that masks and social distancing are no longer needed for vaccinated Americans. Um, It's sort of, at least in our area, Jeff, it's kind of scattered all over. Each uh, county or municipality is slightly different, but generally, masks and social distancing Uh, requirements and restrictions are no longer in place for vaccinated Americans. So as you mentioned, travel to Europe, it's also important to remember this is true of travel in the United States as well. The regulations and restrictions are changing weekly, if not daily. And if you're heading out on the road or to the airport for travel in the United States, it's you need to spend some time familiarizing yourself with the current Uh, restrictions and uh, requirements or the lack thereof and plan accordingly. And it's important to know that although they have said whether you're outdoors or indoors, if you're vaccinated, you do not need a mask, that you still do need to follow the rules for any specific businesses. Businesses may not be comfortable with this yet. They may still require masks. And like you said, people traveling in the U.S., if you're on any type of public transit, if you're on a train, if you're on a plane, if you're on, I assume, a ferry, I don't. I think it applies to all public transit, buses, metro, you are still required by the federal government to wear a mask. So make sure you're doing that as you're traveling in the U.S. and pay attention as things move on. 
as things open up, as we start to not have to wear masks, those of us who are fully vaccinated, it's starting to look better for this summer. I'm excited about it. And that's all we have for the updates this week. We'll be back again next week to let you know what's happening in the world of miles and points and travel. Well, we hope you had as much fun listening to Eli as we did talking to him. Be sure to check back next week for the conclusion of our interview. And if you want to try some of these amazing drinks that Eli is fermenting, we recommend planning a trip and making your way to Urban Farm Fermentary in Portland, Maine. Thanks again to our sponsor, Beer by Coleman, for helping us get this episode out to you. The information you need for them and all of the important points and links for things that we talked about during our conversation with Eli will be in the show notes. That way, you can pick up anything that you missed the first time through. The easiest place to find those notes is at milesandpints.com. Thanks so much for listening to Miles and Pints, the travel and beer podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe so you can hear all of our new episodes as soon as they're released. Tell your friends and family about us so they can enjoy the show too. And please take a few minutes to leave us a review on your favorite listening platform. In between episodes, you can get more travel and beer content by following at Miles and Pints on Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok. You can also stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash milesandpints. And that's all we have for this episode. Until next time, we hope you'll find yourselves a little bit of travel, a little bit of beer, and a whole lot of fun.